The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Some of the experiences that ultimately contribute the most to our happiness overall can feel painful, sorrowful, or even tragic as we're experiencing them. If we want to be truly happy then, in the philosophical sense, it's important to step back and ask about the kind of life we need to live and the kind of person we need to become if we want to be truly, deeply happy. Happy Friday, everyone. This is the Next Big Idea Daily, and I'm your host, Michael Kovnett. Here's a question for you. Are you leading a good life? Would you even know it if you were? What it means to lead a good life is a question people have been asking themselves pretty much since our species began. So why should you have to figure it out from scratch? Notre Dame philosophy professors Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko have distilled centuries worth of wisdom into their new book, The Good Life Method, reasoning through big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning. It's based on their popular undergraduate course, God and the Good Life, in which Megan and Paul draw from ancient philosophers and everyday modern dilemmas to help us think through what it means to be happy, to be good, and to live with purpose. Here they are to share some big ideas from the book. Hi, I'm Paul Blaschko. And I'm Megan Sullivan. We're philosophy professors at the University of Notre Dame where for the past seven years, we've been developing and teaching a course devoted to helping thousands of students reflect on and live good and excellent lives. Our approach goes all the way back to Plato. And today we're going to share five big ideas from the book that we wrote based on our course. The book is called The Good Life Method. We wrote it because we think these philosophical questions affect us at all life stages, And we want to invite you into the conversation with these great philosophers and their ideas. Happiness is more than a feeling. We all want to be happy, but what exactly does this mean? Today, we often think about happiness as a feeling or an emotion. It's the opposite of sadness. It's what we feel when we're watching our favorite movie or eating a delicious meal. This psychological kind of happiness is important. And we certainly can't ignore it if we're trying to lead meaningful, contented lives. But philosophers since Aristotle have challenged us to think about happiness differently. To see this, consider the following story. Suppose a neurosurgeon offered you the opportunity to have a device installed in your brain that would give you a constant feeling of well-being. You'd never stop experiencing something like a runner's high or the feeling you get when you're absorbed in your favorite activity. Most of us would probably refuse this offer, and it's not because we don't want to be happy. What this experiment helps us see, then, is that happiness is a complex thing. It's a state we achieve through years of effort, hard work, and life experience. And some of the experiences that ultimately contribute the most to our happiness overall can feel painful, sorrowful, or even tragic as we're experiencing them. If we want to be truly happy, then, in the philosophical sense, It's important to step back and ask about the kind of life we need to live and the kind of person we need to become if we want to be truly, deeply happy. You can learn to ask better questions. A lot of folks are uncomfortable with the idea that we can develop better ideas about big existential good life questions. 
And in our deeply polarized times, it can be unnerving to even think about having a conversation with someone else about a complicated moral or political or religious topic. From the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates, we get a model for how to make progress on our beliefs by learning how to ask questions we don't think we already know the answer to. Think about two ways questions can be used in a conversation. First, there are prosecutor questions. The kinds of questions you ask to get somebody on the record or to expose their good life beliefs. A vegetarian might ask a meat eater, why don't you care about animals? These questions immediately raise defenses, and they turn philosophical debate into a power game. But there are also dinner party questions, the kinds of questions we ask when we don't know the answer, but we want to, and we want to know the person with the answer. You might ask someone with very different food ethics, When in your life did you start to realize that you had reasons for what you eat? You probably don't know what they'll say, and you'll definitely learn something about their veganism as a result of asking. The skill, as Socrates shows us, is learning to love not knowing, and then getting more skilled at asking. This is why he thought the unexamined life was not worth living. Stories can help us become better, more responsible people. Think about the kind of stories that you tell when you're networking or meeting somebody at a party. If you're anything like us, there's a temptation to select these stories for the light they cast you in. To take a simple example, if I'm late for lunch with a friend, I can tell a story in which I'm the victim of unpredictable traffic or the probably more accurate one in which I just didn't care enough to make sure I left enough time. Thinking about the stories we love to tell gives us insight into the kinds of virtue that we're aiming at. And if we're reflective about our own propaganda, it also tells us something about where we're falling short. Elizabeth Anscombe, one of the heroes of Arbor and a revolutionary figure in 20th century philosophy, helps explain why stories are so important to our moral lives. She recognized that figuring out what's right and wrong, what to do in a particular situation, depends in important ways on our motivation, our attitudes and intentions. When my son Solomon hits his little sister, it really does matter whether he meant to do it or whether it was an accident. Hanscombe also helps us that stories can help us uncover the truth about our motivations and that the ability to tell true stories in all their rich detail, especially when this casts us in an unfavorable light, is an important skill in taking responsibility for our action and in learning how to grow in virtue. Attention is a key ingredient of love. And we don't mean attention just as showering your loved ones with gifts and activities and praise. Attention, for philosophers, is a matter of trying to make them a second self, to make their inner narratives and ideas a part of your own good life. The ancient virtue ethicists tell us this is a skill of perceiving how someone we love perceives their own life. Contemporary virtue ethicists like Iris Murdoch teach it as a skill of looking. To see why this is important, think about all the ways technology might try to help us outsource love. Maybe we will develop super intelligent baby monitors that do everything for an infant that new parents typically struggle to manage. It will calm children when they wake in the night, monitor their food and sleep and health, teach them language. We might worry that we shouldn't develop technology that makes key loving relationships, like the parent-child relationship, so detached and efficient. A major part of loving your child 
is learning to have that kind of direct shared attention that emerges from poopy diapers and late night feedings. There's also plenty of evidence that the kind of intimacy and vulnerability that predicts stable friendships and romance depends on learning to access each other's minds with attentive questions. Philosophical contemplation helps us focus on what really matters. One of the oldest philosophical insights is that a great deal of anxiety comes from being overly attached to things outside of our control. If I make my happiness depend on becoming fabulously successful, wealthy, or powerful, I'll be vulnerable to the whims of others and to the contingency of fate. One option in light of this fact is to double down, to try even harder to accomplish my ambitious goals, to hustle more, put in longer hours, to try to exert more control. But Stoic philosophers, like Marcus Aurelius, remind us that this isn't the only way. Stoics encourage us to use reason to constantly reorient ourselves toward what really matters. In their view, the most important things in life were virtue and a right orientation toward reality. Because we always have control over our reactions to things, and because we can always respond virtuously to any situation, this can help us make sure that we're not attaching our happiness to things beyond our control. Here's how this played out in practice for Marcus Aurelius. Suppose something bad happened, he lost a battle, or someone took off with part of his fortune. He would sit down and meditate on the fact that no one could take away his virtue. That material wealth doesn't make a person good or bad. He even thinks this works in the face of our deep anxieties about our own mortality. Thank you, Megan and Paul. Well, everyone, I'm going to take some time this weekend to reflect on what really matters, and I'm hoping you will too. Come on back Monday when I'll have a new batch of life-changing, inspiring, and useful ideas for you. This week's episodes were written by me and edited by Kayla Bissinger. The Next Big Idea Daily is part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. We'll see you next week.